This is God's Word. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. And by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come along them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side when he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to everybody else, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. So in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they might be a guard for us by night and and, uh, may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, this is God's word. Let's just pray briefly before we dive in. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we don't just learn new information, but we encounter you, Jesus, through your word. Speak, for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you've ever been to my house, you've probably noticed that it's littered with books. It's just books are everywhere. Uh, What you don't realize is that most of those books are about halfway read. I'm just going to confess it to you now. Uh, They're about halfway read, most of them. Because for me, it's easy. It's very easy. It's maybe um, sort of unhealthily easy for me to start new books. And it's almost easier for me to finish books that are nearly done. But the middle, the middle, the middle of a book, that's the push. That's the section uh, that's hard. You've heard about the law of the excluded middle. Well, I'm going to call this the law of the exhausted middle. Okay? That's sort of how I'm going to deem this. And this law plays out all over the place. So in our family, when we travel to Michigan, it's a seven-hour trip, or ought to be with, if there's no stops, but that's not the real world. So it's about a nine-hour trip. And the first stretch is easy. The, second stre- the third stretch, the last stretch, is exhilarating. It's the middle stretch, which is why our family always stops at Ann Arbor. Or take my garage. 
Uh, that thing looked gorgeous all summer, but from one angle. <laughs> because when you walked around to the other side, it was half painted. And it stayed that way for like many, many, embarrassingly many weeks. Again, the law of the exhausted middle. Or take, uh, take the, the nationwide marathon that's coming up. Many of you are preparing for this, and it's been told, though I don't know this personally, that a marathon is in essence two races. The first 20 miles and then the last 10K. The law of the exhausted middle. Or take our church, for example. We started meeting in this space, get this, how many years ago? Do you know? Seven years ago. Okay, so we, we've been here seven years. Can you believe that? Now, we've only been hoped for one year. But really, this effort of church planting is a seven-year effort. And so it's no surprise that this past summer was a hard summer. And it's no surprise that I feel like God is calling our church into a season of renewal. Some of you might be feeling the law of the exhausted middle at this church. You've been here for a while and there's things that you thought would sort of get better with time and it hasn't gotten better. Or there's, there's dreams that you had in the vision when we first started planting that have not yet materialized. Or you're kind of tired of rubbing shoulders with the same people. It's the law of the exhausted middle. You're feeling restless and it's easy now in the seventh year to feel that way. I could go on and on and on. Marriages, parenting, our education. Amen? Education? Who's getting advanced education? You're kind of like, when is this going to be over? But I'd like to think a minute about our journey with Jesus. Our journey with Jesus. Because I think this law of the exhausted middle applies here very sharply. When you start your journey with Jesus, it's fresh. It's exciting. And though I don't know firsthand, but I have been told and I've witnessed that when a follower of Jesus is near the end of their journey, there is a momentum and even an eagerness to find rest in Jesus. But the middle, the middle is exhausting. The exhausted middle in our journey with Jesus is when you get disillusioned with other Jesus followers. The exhausted middle in your journey with Jesus is when your fire starts to wane into embers and even maybe lower than embers. It's when you get bored with Jesus. It's when you get angry with Jesus. Many Christians across the ages have called this the wall or the dark night. Milton called it the hill. I guess I'm calling it the exhausted middle. We see this exhausted middle at work with Israel 400 years before Jesus came onto the scene. In the text that we just read, after exile, God called his people back to rebuild and to be renewed as a people and to be renewed in their mission to be a blessing to all of the nations. See, they believed that God's house was in the center of the universe. And as God dwelled among them and forgave them of their sins through the sacrifice system, and as as, as God renewed them, they then became a lantern to the nations. They then became a city within a greater city. And they saw God calling the exiles who were just 
out of that house. And God extracted himself from his own house. And now renewal is happening. And they got off to an amazing start. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says, So they built the wall. They started going after it. And the vision that Nehemiah gave them was compelling. It 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 was gripping them, all of who they were. But three things started to happen in the middle. In the exhausted middle. Look at verse 10. Exhaustion happened. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing and there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And so I don't know if you've, if you've ever been on a move, helping a buddy move, but this is that moment when the couch doesn't fit through the stairway and doesn't make that whatever degree angle, 90 degree angle that it needs to make to make through the door. And you've just been spending about three hours unpacking boxes and you're just trying to shove that couch into their room. And you are just like, you know what? I love you. I love you. I gave up my pickup truck for you. But this is where I have to go home. That's what's happening with Israel. It's like, it's like, God, we love you. We know you're calling us to this mission. But the rubble, it's just too much. And we're exhausted. And then on top of that, verse 11, if you look down, it shows opposition to their mission. It says, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come along them and kill them and stop the work. And so they knew about this threat. This really serious threat. We're we're not just going to stop what you're doing. We're going to end your life. We're going to extinguish you. And so exhaustion plus opposition leads to capitulation in in verse 12. It says, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times. You ever had someone say something to you like twice or three times or you get that reminder email like for the fourth time? You're like, geez, come on. I get it. I'm not responsible. But This is like a 10 time approach. And they're saying you need to return. You need to get out of that city and you need to return to exile. Isn't that amazing? Actually, it's scary. It's scary. It's a reversal of the entire direction and momentum of Nehemiah. Think about it. The whole whole momentum of Nehemiah is God saying return. Be renewed. And what we see in verse 12 is God's people saying, no, 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 don't listen to God. You need to return to slavery. You need to return to exile because it's getting too hard. That's the middle. That's what happens in the middle. It's when exhaustion and opposition come together and nudge us toward capitulation. Uh, So the economist Richard Thaler, he actually has a word for this. He calls it the nudge. He says that there's things in our lives that nudge us towards actions. And so if you remove your TV, for instance, from your living room, then there isn't a nudge to turn it on. Whereas if it's right there in the center, you're always going to be nudged to turn it on, right? Or if you put your Instagram app, and I recommend this, by the way, in the very back of your phone pages, you'll be less inclined to open it while you're standing in line at Chipotle, right? Because why? It's not there nudging you. And similarly, when, when, when exhaustion in the Christian life uh, uh, combines with opposition, whatever, it is internal or external whether it's your co- colleagues whether it's 
the way that the public speaks of, of those who hold to the faith once delivered in, in, in politics or in media. Like whenever, even if, if your spouse or your best friend starts to oppose uh, your walk with Jesus, like when exhaustion uh, sort of gets married to that opposition, it's a, it's a massive nudge to capitulate, to just say, I'm, it's out, okay, I'll return to slavery. This is getting too hard. So what do we do to, ex- to, to not just survive, but thrive in the exhausted middle? That's the question this morning. Not, not just survive, although that would be a good goal for some of us. But to grow, to thrive. What, what, like, what needs to happen? Well, I, you know, I believe God obviously gave us his Bible, uh, in particular Nehemiah, to help us with this problem. In our passage that we heard this morning, I see, I see three things happen from the person Nehemiah, the leader Nehemiah, who is a good leader, by the way. The very last verse, as, as we read it, it says, it says, I and everyone else did not even take our clothes off. Like That's how committed I was to this project. And so here's a leader who's not sitting in the stands watching the team play, but is actually, you know, like your favorite coach actually wears the uniform of the players, you know, and there's something kind of cool and compelling about that. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's, he's sort of like, I am with you in this. So I'm not just telling you to do this. I'm doing it with you, right? And what he does is he, is I think he gives us three ways to sort of not just survive, but thrive in the exhausted middle. And it's this. First, they regroup. Second, they remember. And third, they return. And I'm going to unpack uh, what each of these mean in our text. So first, regroup. And in verse 13, Nehemiah stops. He says, so in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clan. So there's a stopping and a stationing. What are they doing? They're regrouping. They're regrouping. Fear, exhaustion, and burnout is in the camp. It's just like this assault. We just saw it in verse 10, 11, and 12. And so the worst thing that he can do is ignore that stuff. And so what does he do instead? He confronts it. He regroups. He stops. And he stations his people. He confronts the issues. And I'm always tempted to ignore the issues. How about you guys? I'm always tempted to ignore the issues. Okay, there's fear, like, like there's opposition in my life. Uh, there's exhaustion in my life. I'll just ignore that and it will go away. That's what I tend to do. In fact, the other day, um, I saw a person driving uh, with a broken taillight. You could tell when they were braking, they only had one taillight and I was just like judging that driver I'm like oh my gosh you're so like you're such a dangerous you know like car on the road and and why don't you just take that in and get that fixed and I was just like going crazy in my internal because I I just get angry in the car more often than anywhere else I feel like my my sense of control is just out the window and and so I get so judgmental uh, and I think this way especially in the case of the taillight because I'm that person Amen, Josie? I, I am that person. I am the person that... Dri- I, could, I could drive years, decades without fixing the taillight in my car. And I hate that about myself. And guess what? 
Self-hatred doesn't sit well with a person. So I'm just going to pour it out on someone else. I'm going to hate someone else who does the same thing. And I'm going to ignore my stuff. I'm going to ignore my issues. I'm going to ignore problems. I'm going to ignore uncomfortable situations. When Nehemiah sees a problem, he stops and he regroups. And he addresses the problem in front of them clearly. He doesn't ignore the unpleasant truths that are in front of them. And we should do that too. So if you're struggling in the exhausted middle, I would suggest to you, number one, to just name it. Name it. And just, just, just stop pretending it's not there. Ask yourself right now if you're ignoring a broken taillight even as you scream at the car in front of you. Your own broken taillight. So we regroup. That's what Nehemiah does. And number two, and this is really the heart of things, and I want to spend the most time here, uh, we remember. So we regroup, but we also, we remember. Look at verse 14. It says, Then I looked and rose, and I said to the nobles, and basically everybody, the officials and the rest of the people, he says, Do not be afraid of them. And he says, Go work. No, that's not true. Are you looking? What does he do? He says, don't be afraid of them. And then he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And now go out and do what you need to do. How can we thrive in the exhausted middle? How can we thrive? Through intentional remembering of the Lord and who he is and what he's done. This is a constant theme in the scriptures. It's a constant theme. After the Exodus, the Lord is like, all right, you're going to do a lot of weird stuff with your kids so they remember this. <laughs> remember the Lord and his awesomeness and his power. That's what, that's what Nehemiah does. He, he taps into the resources of God's revelation, his history, his, his scriptures. And he says, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And in particular, he says, remember that God is great and awesome. And in, all throughout scripture, that sort of combo of uh, the awesomeness of God and the greatness of God and the remembering and placing yourself uh, underneath that greatness and awesomeness. There's a word for that. It's called fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is in the, in the scriptures uh, not being afraid of God like I'm afraid of brown recluses. Like that's not the sort of uh, the, the vibe of fear that's going on. Fear of the Lord isn't, you know, when your uh, lower brainstem reacts to a threat. That's not the same kind of fear. Fear of the Lord is standing in awe of God and His greatness and His, His majesty and His splendor and His beauty. And when the awe of God grows in your heart, fear of man and fear of circumstances start to shrink. It's really like this. Think of what you're most afraid of. Think of what is most discouraging to you. Put it in that blank space. And what the fear of the Lord does is it reorients that. It resizes it. And it gets smaller. As the fear of the Lord grows, as His majesty and splendor and all grows, 
person or that conversation or that issue or that thing or that whatever that you're so deeply afraid of, it starts to shrink. It's just, it's just the, the logic or mathematics of the kingdom. It's just how it works. And that's why Nehemiah says, remember, remember his strength. Remember how awesome he is. Awe. Stand in awe of God. That's what he's telling us to do. Stand in awe of God. He doesn't say, hey, you know, gird up. We got a big, big battle ahead of us. He says, no, just stop for a second and remember the Lord. And then later he actually says, the Lord's going to fight for you. And that's what happens. You start thinking truth and you start living and leaning into that truth. I learned this week uh, from a Christian brain doctor that intentional remembering actually rewires your automatic thoughts and feelings. So we all have these automatic thoughts and feelings. And neuroscientists would say neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. And so what happens is we live life afraid of things. We live life with all these traumatic experiences. We live life and suddenly we have all these pathways, these sort of wired neuron pathways. And what we see and what we're learning from science is that when we actually intentionally sort of remember the Lord and connect our story with his story, it actually rewires the pathways of our brain. Isn't that amazing? It's like, it's like God sort of made our brains to react to his story. God doesn't just redeem us and rescue us and restore us, but he renews our minds. And one of the key ways we do that is by remembering his story. That's why we're here to worship. We're here to worship. I mean, the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect this. Why? Because if we neglect this, then we're not connecting our story to his story. And we're just living in these automatic thoughts, many of which... Are untrue. I'm going to get, you know, catastrophic thinking. Like, I'm just going to get destroyed by this. And then we, we come here and we hear about the awesome power of God. He created everything. And we suddenly are like, you know what? Worst case scenario is no longer worst case scenario in light of God's majesty. And we need to do that constantly. We need to do it privately. We need to do it corporately. We need to read the scriptures. We're not doing this to prove ourselves to God. We're doing this to remember how awesome he is. And then finally, as a church and as individuals in his church, let's return. Let's return. After Nehemiah regroups, remembers, he returns to work. And he encourages all of God's people to return to work. So instead of paralysis, instead of just sort of living with burnout, uh, he encourages people to work. But listen, he doesn't just say get to work. He, he kind of adds a lot of caveats. Did you notice as I was reading the text? There's like a lot of swords being strapped onto the hip and stuff, you know, and they're building with one hand and they sort of have a weapon in the other hand. So I will call this uh, living in the tension between the sword and the shovel. Because on the one hand, they have they have building equipment and on the other hand, they have defensive sort of equipment and they're living in this tension, this sort of what Jesus might call intersection of serpent and dove. Be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. 
And so we are the people of the serpent and the dove. That's, that's what Jesus calls us. We work, but we work in wisdom. We enter into the, to the fight. We sort of go back after we've regrouped, after we've remembered who the Lord is. We then return to the work that we're called to do. And in returning, we are not naive about the nature of the battle, about the nature of the work that God's called us to Okay, we're not fighting a physical battle. Uh, Paul would say in Ephesians 4 that we're in a spiritual battle. More on that later. But the point is, we walk in faithful, never naive. Faithful, never naive. I remember in seminary... The day after a national event happened, many, many students were discouraged. Our, my Old Testament professor, he said to all of us, he said, Christians, I don't know how you feel this morning. We've got work to do. We're citizens of God's kingdom. And we've got work to do. No matter what will happen in our respective nation, no matter what happens, our mission remains the same. We're we're kingdom citizens. And we all have a mission in this kingdom to build each other up. To use the gifts that God has given us, spiritual gifts, to encourage one another and to point to Jesus. We've got work to do. Mercy and justice in the city that we live. We've got work to do. Extending the welcome of Jesus to people who are absolutely excluded. We've got work to do. Opening our living room when when it's terrible timing. We've got work to do. Opening the scriptures before we start our day. Because man, if we are left alone to our own devices, we are going to make a wreck. We've got work to do. Like Nehemiah standing and seeing and then saying what is true. We all have work to do. And so if you're like me and you're just kind of discouraged by a lot of things, our national discourse, I was telling my wife the other day, I'm kind of just ready to press eject and to live in a desert community for a while. I'm like ready to turn hope into a monastery, amen? Anybody want to just kind of just go and get out for a while? Man. Nehemiah would talk to me and he'd say, Joe, live in the intersection between the shovel and the sword. Okay? Live in the intersection of the shovel and the sword. Take up your shovel and engage in local and tangible acts of faithfulness. Start with your spouse if you're married, or your kids if you have children, or your family. Local. Your school. Local. Local. Your community. The person you buy your coffee from. Start there and be faithful. Pick up your shovel and be faithful. Extend the welcome of Jesus to the refugee in your community. Find out ways that you can help. Be faithful locally, okay? And when we get on Twitter and we get on Facebook and we do all this stuff, we immediately go global, which is okay, right, to be globally aware. But we do it at the expense of the people sitting next to us. And so pick up your shovel, Nehemiah would say. Joe, don't go to the desert. Pick up your shovel. Be faithful. But don't be naive. Remember, the shovel and the sword. This is a battle. This is hard. There's opposition. Ephesians 6 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. And this is sort of, I think Paul's sort of, uh, you know, the Hebrews had a way of, of riffing on Scripture. They call it Midrash. Um, 
This is kind of Paul's midrash, I think, on, on, on Nehemiah's statement. The Lord will fight for you. Paul says this. He says, he says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Close your eyes and hear this. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is serious stuff, guys. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when, not if, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish, not some, all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Shovel and sword. Small, faithful acts. Like Teresa, one of, uh, in the the 19th century, Teresa of Lisieux, she calls it the, the little way. The little way. Small acts of faithfulness. But with your sword strapped to your side. Scripture. And put on the full armor of God. Don't be naive. This is a battle. Look, the minute you sort of decide to kind of engage after you've remembered the greatness of the Lord, I just think you're walking into a just it's you're walking into a space that is contested. And you don't see it with your eyes. Okay, so so you put on the armor of God. What is that? Well, Isaiah, this is important and this is crucial, and this is how we'll close. Isaiah fifty nine says that Jesus, the Messiah, will put on Righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And what we have here is we have this picture of this divine Messiah who is also a warrior who will also win. And so when Paul says, put on that stuff, what he's actually saying is he's saying, put on Jesus. Anybody with Isaiah 59 in their veins would understand that Paul is saying, put on Jesus who has already won. He will fight for you. So living in the intersection of shovel and sword means that you are simply resting in your union with Christ. Jesus, who has already battled and won at the cross, he defeated Satan and he disarmed the rulers and he sort of leads them in a victory, uh, a victory, uh, uh, a parade and, and is mocking them behind him. And he's giving his people gifts. He's saying, here you go. Here you go. Now point your friend to me. Worship me. Satan is defeated. The the dragon's head has been cut. The war is over. I have fought for you. And when you rest in that union and he is your victor and you put him on, you can get to work. You can be bold. God will fight for us. Thank you, Nehemiah. He has in Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Lord, would you uh, regroup us? Would you help us remember? And would you then um, compel us to return to what we have to do in this exhausted middle? I pray, Lord, that this would be a season in our church and also individually as we as we gather a season of renewal. And would remembering be a key piece of our renewal? Would we stand in awe of your greatness? And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.